Ronald McDonald comes up as a mm. classic example Ronald of a cloud that many people find. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone as confused by the latest health study as I am by the weather. I know it is cliche to talk about the weather, but I feel like we mm-hmm. have to talk about the weather. <laughs> it has rained every weekend for the past, what, 50 years, it feels like? Correct. How, how are we supposed to exist in a place? And we also went from like 80 degrees on Saturday to like 30 degrees today. What is happening? And not to mention the fact that there is no heat in this building. That's what I thought you were going to say. I'm sitting here in a down jacket and gloves. So Jess is wearing gloves inside the office, if you can believe it. So we are we are clearly in unusual times. The temperature has been all over the place. Yeah. Like it was really, it was like almost 80 last week, and now we're in the 30s. And is Crazy. it, is it, is it, um, is it? The universe trying to tell us something that it switched from 80 to 30 just before Halloween. So the kids had to go out Mm. in cold jackets and all that. I think that could very well be yeah. the case. The universe yeah. is did angry. you did you have a lot of trick or treaters? No, year, and no. I bought. I have to say, I bought uh, more candy than usual <laughs> because I always fear fear that we're going to run out, and I didn't even give away half of the candy. So now I have to eat it. You know, we we bought bad candy this year intentionally like, so, no, that you could like, <laughs> so that you wouldn't. No, need it? actually, you know, and it was. <sighs> My husband got this. Um, it was like the, the the Tootsie Roll pack. Oh no! Where it was like you all the really house? chewy Tootsie Roll. It was like the Tootsie Roll product. So like Tootsie, what are they called? Tootsie Pops, like the lollipops, yeah. and then the yeah. and then like all, where you know one of my daughters has braces, and she's like, I can't eat any of this. And I was like, Sorry. Okay, you might as well have <laughs> so, got. Yeah, you might as well have gotten the Necco wafers. Right. I mean, we just like flat out peanuts and tell the kids who are allergic too bad. <laughs> I know raisins. It wasn't it wasn't the best year. Yeah, in yeah. my house. Yeah. Well, anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health. Welcome back, Jess. Thanks, Matt. And we have the newest member of the Free Associations family joining us today, Dr. Allegra Gordon from the Department of Community Health Sciences at BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Allegra. Thanks, Matt. So Thanks, glad Jessica. to have you here. Happy to have you. Very happy to be here. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at pophealthex.org. I stopped saying the www because no, no. I was told not to. That's BU's hug for lifelong learning where you can find archives of our previous episodes, which I know people are digging into and going into every single back episode, but also lots of population health programs and tools. And also a reminder to go and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other major podcast apps or websites or whatever it is to help other people find us. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on the effect of red meat warning labels. Then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about countering disinformation. And then in our third segment, which is the amazing amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or we just found fascinating. So let's get into segment one. So the article we're looking at this week looked at taxes and red meat warning labels. It looked at more than that, but it was published in PLOS Medicine, which I just want to say up front, I believe has the worst table formatting of any journal, major journal anyway. Fantastic journal. I just wish they would format their tables nicer. I hope uh, they're listening. 
What's that? I it, hope they're listening. I assume they are. Taking this feedback. I in. assume that is why that is they you are. Did you also notice they, they duplicated a paragraph in this yes. in this paper? Well, okay, like, somehow I, I managed to miss that, so that doesn't speak <laughs> yeah, well I don't know. Editing of is my a little, close reading. little light on this one, maybe. Okay, we'll have to come back to that. The study was in PLOS Medicine. It was entitled Impact of Taxes and Warning Labels. So it wasn't just taxes, which I said before. On Red Meat Purchases Among U.S. Consumers, a Randomized Controlled Trial by first author Lindsay Smith-Talley of of the Carolina Population Center at the University of North Carolina down in sunny Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I, I have no headlines on this one, so this wasn't one that got a lot of press, but Jess, can you walk us through this study? I can, and I'm excited to do so. This study, to me, got a lot of points for fun. It's got a lot of fun points. I thought, I thought so, too. Right? I right? thought so, too. Yeah, so we'll discuss. Anyway, so this study, as we all know, kind of takes place in the context of a growing knowledge that red meat consumption is bad for human health and all also for the environment. It's a major contributor to global warming through greenhouse gas emissions, land use and biodiversity loss in terms of land use for uh, red meat production. And red meat consumption is a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease, metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes and colorectal cancer. So kind of bad, bad all around as the, you know, in the framing of this study. They don't talk about nutritional elements related to meat consumption, especially for food insecure people. But so we're putting that to the side, focused on um, the negatives of red meat consumption for human health and also for the environment. The authors note that the majority of Americans indicate concern for climate change and also for the negative health impacts of red meat, according to national surveys. And they reflect on the fact that public policies are effective tools in our public health toolbox for affecting behavior change around things that are health negatives and also environmental negatives. So taxes and warning labels are two of the established tools to impart behavior change. And some examples are the soda tax that exists in some U.S. cities where sweetened beverages have an additional tax on them or warning labels on cigarettes that exist in combination with taxes, for example. So the research question that the authors ask here, their primary question, is would taxes and warning labels on red meat food products both separately and in combination, reduce red meat purchases in the United States. So what they did, which was kind of cool, they conducted a randomized controlled trial using online recruitment and four experimental conditions that I'll talk about in a moment. They used, it looks like they had developed this already for other studies, what they were calling, and I quote, a naturalistic online grocery store. So this was an online grocery store platform that seems to have been designed for these kind of purchasing studies to mimic an online grocery shopping experience. The store, quote unquote, included over (laughs) 13,000 products, including all major departments and supermarket aisles. It had a shopping cart, a shopping list. And so it was, they were really trying to mimic a real online supermarket. Participants for this study were recruited by a research recruiting firm during a 10-day period in October 2021 using convenience sampling design, but with outreach attempting to reach a sample that was representative of the U.S. population in terms of gender, race, and ethnicity, income, and age. And we can talk about their 
eventual sample when we discuss. Their eligibility criteria were 18 years and older, currently residing in the United States, and participants who reported eating red meat at least once a week during the last 30 days, and also individuals who were typically doing at least half of the food shopping for their households, and these folks were eligible to participate. With these eligibility criteria, they enrolled 4,148 participants during this week in October, and they randomized these individuals to one of four conditions in a one-to-one-to-one one-to-one-to-one-to-one ratio. The first was a group where the red meat items had warning labels on them, and the warning label had a dual warning about colon and rectal cancer that said, warning in capital letters, eating red meat increases your risk of colon and rectal cancer. And it had a second label that said, warning in capital letters, eating red meat harms the environment. So that was their first experimental condition where participants saw red meat products that had these warning labels. The second group, and this first group had about 800 and had 887 people. The second group was a tax group where the red meat products in this online grocery store were taxed at 30%. There were 891 people in this group. There were 866 people who saw the warnings and also experienced the tax. And then there were 887 people who experienced neither the labels nor the tax as the control group. The participants were given a shopping list with nine items that they had to purchase for which there were options of meat or vegetarian choices. So some of the examples for, you know, for instance, had multiple meats, like they were asked to shop for sandwich fillings that could be turkey, ham, or peanut butter, a vegetarian option, or a taco filling where chicken, steak, or beans could be the option. So they had nine different items they had to purchase for which there were options between meat and vegetarian food choices. They had $40 to spend. The participants had $40 to spend. And then they had kind of an incentive structure where a certain percentage of participants actually got $40 at the end as an incentive. The authors had two primary outcomes here. The first was the count of products in their final shopping cart that contained meat. And the second was the percent of products in their shopping cart that contained red meat. Their secondary outcomes were the nutritional composition of their shopping basket. They viewed that through calories, total saturated fat, and sodium levels. They also conducted more exploratory analyses around the perceptions of tax and warning labels, some psychological outcomes in terms of how much did they think about the environment or the health harms or the prices as they performed the shopping task, perceptions around eating red meat, perceptions of specific red meat products, and participants were also asked basic demographic information, including income, educational attainment, gender, and race and ethnicity. From a statistical standpoint, they used a combination of comparison tests and regression models to analyze their data alongside these endpoints. So what did they find? Compared to the control group, participants in all three of the intervention groups, which were the warning labels, the taxes, and the warning labels plus the taxes, they all purchased less red meat according to their two different outcomes, so count and also percent. In the control group, 39% of their products contained red meat. In the warning label group, it was 36%. In the tax group, it was 34%. And the combined warning label and tax group was 
31%. And each of these three intervention groups, their percentage was statistically significant than the control group. They had fewer products in their cart that contained red meat, ranging from 2.7 items on average in the label plus warning group to 3.5 items on average in the control group. So according to both of their endpoints count and percent of products, the intervention schemes did show a reduction in meat purchasing compared to a no intervention scheme. And this reflected a 21 to 26 percent reduction of red meat purchases based on the experimental condition. In some of their secondary analyses, they noted some interesting things, one that might have jumped out to us as we were reading. People with graduate degrees were particularly unaffected by the combined condition compared to other people in their study. So even the tax and the warning label did not change their purchasing decisions. Younger people were more likely to be affected by the experimental conditions compared to older people and to change their purchasing in that way as well. The combined tax and warning condition led to fewer calories purchased and to lower saturated fat composition of the shopping cart, but seemingly had no effect on sodium content. Interestingly, policy support, when the participants were asked if they support these different interventions, it was low for taxes, with only 21% of respondents supporting taxes, while approximately 40% supported the warning labels. The authors noted a number of times that one of their concerns or the limitations of their study was that the participants did not exactly mirror the U.S. population. They were majority women, majority white, non-Hispanic, and and their findings also might have been biased by the fact that a minority of the U.S. population, maybe 30 to 40 percent, actually report doing online shopping. So their experimental condition may have been a little bit artificial in that way. Really good summary. Uh, there's so much going on here. Uh, Allegra, what's your what's your take on this study? Yeah, I, I will say I, I really enjoyed reading this study. As did I. Yeah, this is different than sort of the field that I work in, but it it feels very pragmatic. And I really appreciated the very elegant design, the use of this naturalistic grocery store, which I think was called Lola's Grocery. Um, I really enjoyed that detail. They, they gave us some good rich details. So I liked that elegant design and the policy-focused approach. And that also... I was thinking about it as sort of, they have sort of a pragmatic optimism, the authors do, in undertaking this study yeah. during this very mm -hmm. politically fractious time that mm -hmm. we're in, mm -hmm. but also a time when many people are very concerned about climate change, are very concerned uh, certainly about health. And I, they raise the question of whether, when we can get to this, sort of the political feasibility, but I appreciate that they're building the evidence so that we can have these conversations and think about, uh, you know, maybe there will be an opportunity for advocacy. So just thinking big picture, I really appreciated both sort of the, the, the overall design and then what they're helping us talk about, what they're contributing to the sort of public conversation. And I, I like that these policy approaches are a bit like harm reduction, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about how do policies help us adjust our behaviors to reduce the harm that we're engaging in, but without demanding purism, which I am not into, not mm -hmm. demanding abstinence. And I, and I think in public health, we often really benefit by remembering the principles of harm reduction and, and uh, thinking about how that applies to our lives. So yeah. those are my big takeaways. I do have a, I mean, I, I'm happy to get into the nitty gritty, but I, I have a very basic question. As a, a former vegetarian, I still don't eat a ton of meat. Not, I don't identify as vegetarian, but 
I just don't, they don't define red meat. And so I just right. want to, just for starters, I would love to just briefly say operationalize red meat here because in the sandwich fillings, they list ham. Is ham red meat? Ham is red meat. I had that same Thank question you. because do you remember though, <laughs> the pork ad campaign, the other, the yes, other, the other white, white meat. meat. Correct. Mm-hmm. And I read that and I was like, huh, I had the same so what, question. So what, what, how would you define red meat? Well, I was asking my partner this, who is a, a meat appreciator, and she, <laughs> she said, it's the meat that's red. <laughs> said, no. okay, can you tell me more? And she said cow and buffalo and mm-hmm. maybe even venison might be considered red meat. But but pork? not pig, but not, not, yeah. not, yeah. So pork is red you meat. Thought you, you think pork is red pork meat. I was a child of the 80s. So I was, I believed I was, that pork was yeah, the other white too. meat. I did too until I went and looked it up. Red meat just is, is meat from mammals. So it, it's, it's any you mammal. Are, you are At least that's my understanding. My I, I should say, I said that very authoritatively. <laughs> that is my understanding, is okay. red meat is meat from uh-huh. a, a mammal. So so that's chicken, true. obviously, does, you know, no. birds don't right. count. Okay. Uh, and then I guess anything from the, you know, the fish and amphibians would not count. But anything that is a mammal would be considered red meat. And therefore, pork, yeah, pork definitely would, would fit into the. But but I, again, I, I shouldn't say that so authoritative. That's my understanding. It is interesting because they, that was clearly the understanding here, that pork was yes. considered red meat. But I had the same question because they give the alternative of pork, turkey, or peanut butter as kind of the two red meat or or one Vegetarian. I didn't even pick up on that. So okay. that's very clarifying. Yeah. yeah. And I've just learned something. Well, let's Thank hope you. that I'm right. Somebody else look it up while I'm talking. The pork I'm board talking. can write us. Uh, yeah, <laughs> really. Us know. Uh, Jess, what about you? What's your What was your take on this one? I I, I mean I I agree with Allegra. This was a really fun study to read. I wanted to go try this naturalistic shopping experiment. It looked like it was. It probably was pretty fun for the participants. I think my my main question was whether or not this really was a realistic depiction of what people would buy, yeah. given that it very much felt like a fun exercise. But did this really reflect what people would actually do if they had, say, if they were doing a week's worth of shopping for their family, or it was highly specified who they were shopping for? Yeah, so I, 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 I had some questions about the realisticness of the exercise and whether it really reflected what people would do in the actual supermarket in the context of more money. For example, if they were spending more than $40. There's an interesting data point that they share that partially speaks to that, where they asked people what their intentions, their red meat purchasing intentions were after participating in the study, and they were unchanged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's almost like perhaps folks were aware Perhaps maybe they weren't aware of the sort of goals of the study, but right. even though behavior was affected, people's intentions were not changed by the process. Yeah. I so I thought am. a lot about this. Yeah. So I, I should say up front, I I really like this study. I have a lot of things to say about it that will sound critical, mm-hmm. but they're not critical of the design. They're not critical of the the interpretation. I mean, I think these, these like, I, there's a part of me that is, when I read studies like this, is so jealous that I don't work in a field mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I'm not suggesting this is, like, easy to do, but compared to, like, setting up longitudinal cohort studies and following people for medical interventions, this seems to me like fairly easy. It's it's cross-sectional in nature in only in the sense that like you only have to do it once to get a real sense for what's happening. 
you got to set up this online store, so that's expensive. But the ethics, right? There's not a lot of ethical issues with doing this. Like it's just stuff that I, I I get jealous when I hear. All my questions around this are: How much are we actually estimating the effect of the intervention? And how much are we estimating the effect of being in a study where you don't know, as you say, like, or you don't know what the goal of the study is, but you know you're in a study, and so therefore your behaviors may be on high alert. Now, you've got an intervention and a comparison arm, so you can you can you can expect that that is going to even out across arms. But it may be that everybody is just on you know, their best behavior, right? I mean, I don't, you know, when people are, you know, surveying me, I don't, about what I've eaten, I don't necessarily tell them about the 10 cookies I ate. And I maybe say I ate, you know, four cookies. So like, if I know I'm being watched, what I purchase may be different. And therefore the overall benefit may be either minimized or exaggerated. I don't know which. So I, I wonder about things like that. And then I also wonder, you know, okay, I thought it was clever to do the online store in the sense that if you, they do these, like, uh, we, I feel like we read a study once where it was, they have like a, an in-person, you know, sort of fake shopping place. We maybe didn't review one, but I remember reading one. And I think like in those environments, you, you are going to be hyper aware of what's going on because you know, you're in a, what looks like a grocery store, but you also know you're being watched. And so, you know, it, it may change where it's online. Like, I don't know, I'm in my home. I might feel a little bit more inclined to behave the way I normally would, but as they say, like not, you know, most people are not doing online purchasing. So, I, you know, what what specifically we learn, I don't know, or I, I should say, I don't know that what we're learning is, is, is universal, but it seems to be there's something there and I find that interesting. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I agree with you. I feel like what would have improved the realistic nature of the experiment obviously would have been if people could have taken their food home with them or they actually could have ordered the food. Right. And that would have been expensive for the investigators, yeah. obviously, beyond what they, you know, what they provided here. About $40, $40 per person, per person right. So if you have four or 5,000 participants <laughs> in the study, obviously that, you know, that adds up. But that I think would have been a more realistic experiment if you had said, then you actually take the food. So it might reflect more of what you might intend to prepare. Yeah. In your, in your house. One of the other things I wanted to mention about this study is they seem to have recruited a sample of folks who were particularly well aware of climate change. Mm. And, and so, which led me to believe, I think they said it was like 60%. I don't remember the exact number of the participants who said they were very, either very or moderately concerned about climate change. And it led me to wonder if this was more of a selective group their whole sample, mm -hmm. including mm -hmm. the control, but like if they, you know, if it was more of a selective group and again, less reflective of the U.S. general population. And so if, if these labels were to roll out in a major way, should we expect to see less of an effect than we see here among, among a group of people who might have greater awareness about climate? Although they did have that finding showing that more highly educated people were totally unaffected, <laughs> which I thought was kind oh, okay, of Okay, can we talk about that? Yeah. So why do we think that is? I, I have thoughts, right. but do you all have thoughts on why? <laughs> well, it seems like they looked for whether there were differences by education level, but they also looked by annual household income, which I understood why they did that. And we would absolutely hypothesize that would be relevant. And they did not find effects to be different by income. But it made me wonder if some of that education effect was related to income, yep. correlated with mm -hmm. income, because that makes a lot of sense in terms of 
if, if you have the resources, right, then you're going to be less sensitive to these price changes. That doesn't address the labeling question, but that seems a key piece. So I kept thinking about that correlation. I, I think that's true. I, I think that's right. And I also think that maybe it was in there and I just missed it, but but it seems to me the, the amount of red meat that you're consuming overall may be different depending, you know, there's a distribution. And so if you are already consuming less red meat, you're already going to purchase less red meat, then the then these things, you know, the, these taxes and, and warnings may have less of an impact. In the same way that, you know, the, the warning label might have less of an impact if you're already very familiar with the, the, the risk and you've already, you know, taken steps in your lives, say, life to mitigate it or Maybe the opposite. You you know it, and you sort of like okay. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm not going to worry about it. And you know, so therefore, it doesn't change my behavior. So I could think of reasons why. I just don't know that they are they get teased out here in a way that we could we could distinctively say. My my assumption in seeing that comment was that like, the more education that you have, kind of the the more you think you know everything. That was oh, kind sure. of that was like my take home. I was like, ah, you know, highly educated people. They're not gonna, you know, you're just like you think you know everything, and so you're not gonna be swayed by what someone else might be telling you in that circumstance. Except for us, we Except do actually us, know. We obviously. do know everything. But I, I I kind of read it as like I was like oh, obnoxious, <laughs> highly educated people. Yeah, no, definitely definitely possible. But you're right that they didn't kind of tease out exactly what that associates or lack of association in that context could be due to. There was another piece that's maybe related to this now that I think about it that I, I really wished had been teased out that just wasn't part of their design. And I was curious about this. So there was the dual label, right? They had two different messages, I think, on every mm -hmm. package mm -hmm. of meat. And I think in other labeling studies, often people test one message yep. at a time. Yep. Right. Yep. So they talk some about the idea of the sort of co-benefits of having an environmental message and a health-related message. But it's hard to read this as a public health person and not be curious about the distinctions between those, right? Because they're very different pathways to us thinking about how we change our behaviors. Yeah. Am I am I being spoken to most by an environmental message or by right. a more, maybe more personal health message that's saying colon cancer, right? Yeah. So, and plus the environmental message is... Very vague, right. right? The health message has the benefit of a little specificity, but they just say, what was it? Harms the this environment. Harms the environment. Warning is a big warning. Very broad. Right. So I really, I could, I just, I was just yearning for, a, I guess, a follow-up, perhaps a design, or maybe they did this beforehand, but they didn't speak to it, in which they tested those two messages separately and mm. together. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just thinking about this, these points you're raising about the education differences too, if there might be differences at that point when you were thinking about the different mechanisms that make us right. change our minds or our buying patterns. I think that's, no, I think that's totally correct. And a, a gap that I identified in reading this, although overall I really liked this study, additionally was they didn't focus on the potential implications of tax on meat for people who are food insecure or in a, in a realistic setting for folks who, who didn't have a lot of money to spend at the supermarket. So I think that is kind of a practical constraint that steps in when you tax basic food products that they didn't really focus on here. So my last question on this one is, and I understand why this would be hard to do, but is there any reason why this couldn't have actually been done in a real online store. Mm -hmm. So we know that online retailers do this kind of A-B testing all the time. You'd have to convince a, you know, a, a retailer to be willing to do this, knowing full well 
that the goal is to get people to purchase less red meat and they therefore maybe against what they are, you know, their interests. And so they might want to do it, but it's also like, it's a small subset of the population and they would at least learn something about it. There is then, then there then becomes the ethical issue of you then would have to do this without consent. Right. But companies do that all the time. The issue is they don't publish their results and therefore it's not research and therefore they can get away with it. But I could imagine this would be the kind of thing that an IRB would waive, would, would, would allow a waiver of consent because it's, you know, it's really just a, a marketing study in some way. I, I don't know that they would. I'm just saying I think that's possible. And so it seems to me theoretically you could do it in a much larger and, you know, representative of the population that's actually using online shopping and, you wouldn't have the same kind of biases, not biases in the right word, the same kind of influences on the effect sizes because it was just what people were going to be doing anyway. I, I'm just curious your thoughts. Yeah, I think one of the things that they they did that allowed comparability was they set the shopping list, right? So everyone had the same yep. shopping list. And in an experiment where, so you're suggesting where maybe people didn't know that they were part of an experiment, You'd have to somehow get comparable items on their on their list. You know, like in my household, we will do like one big food shop a week. And then sometimes there is a secondary food shop where we're just picking up produce or we just need small things or a loaf of bread or something, something smaller. And so that would be the challenge I could foresee in a scenario of trying to kind of have everyone go in without knowing, you know. So what they could do here is they could set the shopping cart which I think was valuable. Although I think you're right that there would be ways you could do this more realistically, even in an in-person supermarket, yeah. if the if the supermarket was amenable to, you know, to identifying people coming in and saying, we're going to give you this certain budget. Can you go buy these items? And then actually let them take them home <laughs> at the end. You could, you could also do it that way in a non-online way. I like that that create a little supermarket shopping spree experience <laughs> shopping spree. for people because I think the other big challenge to doing this sort of in the real world is the point you're raising about sort of equity, people who are food insecure and who sort of who has the resources and, and we're interested in that in the real world. But if we're doing this as research, we need to find a way to not so and especially if people are going to be randomized stores or people are going to be randomized to different conditions, how do you make sure that everybody has the the resources if they end up in the condition where there's tax being right. applied, right? So I don't know what the design would be to make sure, but maybe it's no, give people I mean, a gift card I, at the start. I, you could you could probably think, you know, it could probably be some idea. Not that I think it's better than what they did, but like where you had a certain supermarket in a given community and you like on certain times during the day you set a condition, but you'd have to compensate people on the back end, you're right, for the tax. Yeah. Interesting. I, I I really enjoyed reading this study, and I I as I say, I get Fun. professionally jealous that they can do these kinds of things that we you know much harder for us to do. But at the same time, it's great to read studies this like is this. Big fun points yeah. for the sun. Yeah. All right. So let's let's pivot to our our second segment, and we're going to talk about an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a short piece called Countering the Health Disinformation Machine by Alex Karulian, who is the director of Fenway Institute's National LGBTQIA plus Health Education Center in Boston. And in it, the person is detailing their experiences. Well, since 2016, the, the Harvard Medical School has been offering this course that was entitled Caring for Patients with Diverse Sexual Orientations, Gender Identities, and Sex Development, a Clinical and Scholarly Elective. 
And this course had been going on for quite a long time, six, seven years, before there's this, a lot of media attention now for LGBTQIA care, particularly around adolescence. And, and it's become something that right-wing media has paid a lot of attention to and critique of. And this got picked up by an outlet that engages college students to write for right-wing media. And they published a story called Harvard Med Class Focuses on LGBTQIA plus infants and older. And this, of course, raised, you know, got then picked up by all of the different right-wing media outlets. The director who then explains that they then had to craft a response, which explained that in this case, infants only referred to the part of the course that was focused on, on sex development. So this was not a course around gender identity for infants. But of course, that is the way that right-wing media chose to interpret this. And this created serious problems for the for the, the institute in caring for, for a very diverse population and a population that has historically had trouble seeking access to care. All of that is, you know, know, once you then release the the corrected information, it's too late, as we all know. You know, we saw this during COVID regularly and repeatedly. Once bad information gets out there, it is all around the world. You publish a correction, even if it's published by the same people who are, are, you know, were well-intentioned, they just got something wrong. They publish a correction very few people actually read the correction. And this was a case where these folks were not interested in the correction, right? This, they were interested in a, a particular uh, viewpoint and getting people outraged over something that had never happened. So obviously no one really finds out about what is truly going on. This, of course, is, you know, it's a specific issue that that comes up that gets a lot of attention. But this is, as we say, like this is COVID. We saw this regularly and repeatedly. And the, the title of the article is Countering the Health Disinformation Machine. So you can think specifically about this instance, or you could think just more broadly. Is there a way that we can actually be effective at countering disinformation? Or do we have to just expect that anybody who disagrees with what public health is going to do, and I'm focusing on public health, but this is, of course, true of, of any viewpoint, that that there are going to be bad faith actors who are going to take things out of context and distort them. And no amount of care and attention to detail, and I'm not suggesting these people were not attentive to detail, but, you know, is there any way to prevent this or do we just have to expect this is going to happen and come up with strategies to counter it? So I'm just curious your your thoughts. Yeah. Well, first, I'll sort of just reflect on the sort of specifics of this piece, because uh, in contrast to the conversation we were just having, which was about a a fairly joyful article to read, this one was much more sort of, it's a very thoughtful piece, but also a very painful Painful. reflection on the way that our, our our current social media environment in particular, but they point out in lockstep with conservative media outlets, has been so successful at fomenting, in this case, very specifically anti-LGBTQ sentiment and fear. So then even these really small, I would say small things like a single course at a single institution that's been willfully misinterpreted, then they escalate into this like category five hurricane Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and including violent threats, like we're escalating, things escalate to violence, right? So it was was a, a really nicely laid out case study hard to read, but I just sort of wanted to, yeah. you know, that that's really the the sort of first piece that I'm processing. And, and I, before we get to the prevention question, I think I can kind of enumerate some of the points that the author makes about the countering piece, because 
we definitely, I do think in public health, we need to really think about our strategies for countering as well as talking about the prevention side. I don't, mm-hmm. I, the mm-hmm. prevention side feels a little bit more unattainable, but I, I liked the way that they talked about sort of needing essentially like a constellation right, of resources, and that we should be thinking as an institution strategically about how we have all those lined up. And perhaps here at the school we do, and I, I don't know how this works in other institutions, but so the things that he named, support from the leaders of the institution, in this case a hospital affiliate, an academic institution, support from funders, which I hadn't thought as much about, right, yeah. presumably not having to fear funding being pulled for the work that they're doing, right, having a super savvy communications team who knew how to listen to the communities that were most impacted as they were devising the responses, having journalists on board doing rigorous fact-checking, even though, as you pointed out, doesn't necessarily make a difference in the social media space, but having that in place was part of the constellation. And then he also talks about responsive law enforcement and social media platform policies for flagging and removing disinformation. So I think one thing we can talk about for prevention is how do we get the social media companies on on board um, with yeah. coordinating? Yeah, can we? I mean, in the current environment, can we get the social media companies on board? We I, I would think that would have to be legislative, and yes. that doesn't seem to be appetite for that at the moment. Yes, but maybe at the state level. Yep. But I'm curious to hear your— yeah. No, I. it was such a tragic— Piece, and I really think for any of our listeners, if you have the chance to, to to read this very brief article by a physician and a clinic director and an instructor who was affected by this misinformation campaign around his med school class, largely, which as Matt was saying and Allegra was saying, was targeted for you know trying to educate doctors about LGBTQ infants, which was like it's like an absurd example. Obviously, which is like clearly you look at that and you're like, that's clearly not what they were doing. And so the kind of the obviousness of the willful misinterpretation was really clear up front. I mean, what 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 stood out for me here was that for for researchers and in this case, you know, teachers or clinicians who engage in these more controversial areas of research, there is such a barrier to entry if we look at needing to have your funders on board and yes. institutional support yes. and a strong media team behind you and journalists who you have existing relationships with, who you know can jump in and and you know kind of provide backup for your work, that it really is a disincentive for for folks to, you know, from the, the professional kind of research academic mm-hmm. clinical standpoint to to engage in certain whole areas of research. And that what was, you know, what was so sad about this particular, like this is a, a, a needed, this is clinical training. Like this was a needed form of clinical education for doctors and a, a gap in a lot of the current curricular offerings for, for medical students. And then it just provides all of these structural barriers for other institutions who maybe are not Harvard to to be able to educate their, you know, this is just doctor's education, but even doing research or educating other medical professionals, just the barriers to entry were yeah. just so stark and so alarming in yeah. yeah. kind of what he described were needed to, to engage without, you know, being able to counter the misinformation. Exactly. Can I just go back to one thing you said, which is that, this this course was clearly not designed to deal with sexual identity for infants. And you said and that's obviously absurd and wasn't what this was for. But but the context here is a media environment that has convinced a whole lot of people that that is the agenda, that that is right, what these right, people want right. to do. And therefore, all you need is a name. Mm-hmm. 
You just go and find something that confirms your priors and you can sell that to a lot of people very easily. And most people are not going to then look into what it actually means. They're just going to be outraged and look at what, you know, the woke left is doing. So that was just one point. In sort of thinking about this, you know, I think about, and I don't know how this would work, who would fund it, how, you know, practicalities, but I think about, you know, institutions that have heavy uh, need for online security, so digital security, often hire people to hack them, right? Mm -hmm. We send people out to hack them, uh, to try and hack themselves so that they can identify their own vulnerabilities. And I like, there's part of me that wonders, do we need the same kind Mm -hmm. of thing to say, like, go out and figure out how people are going to use anything that we do against us so that we know and are prepared and develop the strategy in advance we're trying to prevent and counter these things. I, again, I, like that would probably have to be something that was done in the context of a, of a, a think tank or, a, you know, academic work. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder about that. I, the other thing I do want to, I, I just want to counter just a little bit is to push back on a little bit of, not push back on, but to say this is a particular example of, of an issue that those on the left care about. The same kind of stuff does happen by those of us on the left in looking at the right as well. I I don't think it's nearly as, you know, in in public health context, I don't think we see it as much. But I just want to point out, like, we are in a culture where people look to confirm their their prior beliefs using social media rather than actually looking into the the details. This one is just a particularly egregious one that comes from from the right. And I do think that is, you know, right-wing media is is pretty famous for this. But I did just want to clarify Mm. that. But- Anyway, thoughts on on this idea of of building resilience through, you know, trying to identify the the vulnerabilities? Yeah, that sounds spot on in terms of how we we have to think from a sort of defensive stance, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. unfortunately, in this current era. And a defensive stance as we think about what it means to have conversations on social media, a space that where we all can become very inflamed very rapidly yeah. without a lot of benefit, <laughs> a lot of net benefit. So if we're thinking defensively, I mean, it does mean I think that there are, they talk in this piece about, you know, removing personal information so as to not get doxxed. I think probably many people need to think about that, wh- how your personal information is online. Yeah. There could be a, a system in place that an institution has to support faculty and staff, people doing research in all different potentially contentious corners to make sure that just at the individual level, the institution supporting individuals to stay protected. Yeah. That's um, hard to do though. It's very hard to get, once your information right. is online, it's very hard to get it yes. offline. And it often, you know, lots of things go online without your permission, right? People do things, uh, you know, put things out there about you when you're in a, in a public, you know, facing organization. So yes. hard to do. Yeah. But it does seem like the policy levers are also, we, even though maybe at the federal level this can't happen, there are state level mechanisms yeah. that we can think about in terms of trying to, th- I mean, and there are a few different, right? Meta's being sued right now by several states, right. not related to this, but we can think about what yeah, are our levers I, to get tech companies to be held more accountable to protecting users and making sure that disinformation can get at least addressed as soon as it's identified. And I'm really curious where those state level purchases are going to go or whether the yes. there's going to be, you know, it's eventually going to make its way up to the Supreme Court that's going to say states can't make their own laws on things that go, you know, that are not solely within their state or they're going to say it's fine. I have I just have no idea. I'm really really curious to see where that's going to go. Yeah. 
Any any last thoughts on this one before we move on? I had one last thought. Yeah. I feel like it puts a different spin on science communication. Yes. Also, and this is something that I think in the last decade, it's there's a growing awareness that among academic researchers, we also need to be trained in how to communicate the findings of our research and that it's not just enough to get it into a great journal, but you have to think about what's the messaging and or else nothing changes because of the research that you do. But I think we don't have as much training on how to deal with what if your research findings are misinterpreted and then amplified and, the, and you know, the misinterpretation yeah. is then amplified online. And so it's an interesting maybe new component to thinking about, you know, when you have a paper and it's getting published and you're working on the press release with, the, you know, the university or they're trying to promote it, kind of what should you be aware of? What are the what are the kind of concern or risk points? And then how might you counter those when you do your initial engagement? I'm glad you raised that. I do work in LGBTQ health and we have dialed back press efforts when they've, you know, when it's a paper's come out that we thought we wanted to share widely and it's been at a time when there were amplifying violent right. threats. And uh, yeah, I think people, we do need guidance in being strategic around that piece as well. And it's very sad that, you know, people exist in that professional space where you're doing important work, but there's personal risk or there's a perception of risk and it's, it's scary. Or even yeah. risk to other community right. members, right? right. Yeah. All right. Shall we, shall we move on to our last segment? which is our amazing and amusing. And I'll go first because I have a nice short one that I just thought was an interesting piece. So this came from, this was an article in Nature, came out on October 13. It was published by Juan Manuel Paria, and it was entitled ChatGPT use shows that the grant application system is broken. So this is clearly one for <laughs> us here in academia. And it just, you know, it's, a, it's just a, a nice piece detailing his experience and experiences with you know, the challenges of writing grants and it, you know, it takes a lot of time and you've been in situations where like you're almost to the end of being able to get a grant, but you know, you're missing sort of those last pieces that are necessary. And so you miss the deadline and you got to wait another cycle or, you know, you just, it's just taking up so much of your time. And, you know, these are all things that, you know, talking with talking with colleagues, he came to realize that some people use you know, artificial intelligence, chat GPT and other, you know, these other programs to help them with or to help them write pieces of. And, you know, all that doesn't, I can't say it surprised me too much to learn, but it, there was just one fact in here that I thought was interesting that I wanted to to share, which is, so he was talking about his particular grant, use some, you know, chat GPT to help with some of the, you know, like some of the the pieces that that maybe aren't like central to the grant, but are more like the writing the abstract or you know, institutional resources, that kind of stuff. They got the grant in on time. He said, next day, while speaking to a friend, I told him this week I wrote my first chat GPT grant. He replied that he'd been doing it for months and that many other scientists are doing the same. A 2023 nature survey of 1,600 researchers found that more than 25% use AI to help them write manuscripts and more than 50% use them to help with grant proposals. I have what? never done this. <laughs> we, and, we are behind. And the I times. feel like, and I, I guess I would feel like I was somehow cheating, and therefore I, 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 I wouldn't use it. But maybe I should be using it. I, 
I don't know. I know that, you know, journals, some journals have now come out with statements that ChatGPT cannot be a co-author. <laughs> ChatGPT, like, I guess they say, like, you can use it, but you have to disclose that you've used it. I'm So I'm just unclear what the right thing and the wrong thing to do is when it comes to things like grant writing and manuscript writing. Can we use it? Can we not use it? Should we use it? Should we not use it? I, I'm just, I'm, but I'm baffled to find that Almost a quarter of, of people have been using it for manuscripts. I've never used it once for anything other than to ask it stupid questions. <laughs> people also use it to generate tests and problem sets and academic materials. Yeah, that, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, that certainly doesn't get to, like, there's nothing about right. a test that says it has to be original, right? I could mm -hmm. find something off the, right. that somebody published on the web and I could give that as a test. I don't think that's a mm -hmm. problem. question is if I'm passing something off as original content, is it okay I mean, I kind of think it is as long as I'm not just like having it make up the results as long as I'm having to like, you know, as long as everything is truthful. But I don't but know. But there's a big gap know. there because I think, I, you know, I have definitely played around with ChatGPT in this context. I've yep. never used it, but like I've I've played around with it and I don't find the writing that great. So, so That's they, a chat, right? And so I'm like, <laughs> I, this doesn't sound like something I would say. And I don't feel like the quality of the writing is as good as what I would want to use. So, so I have two thoughts on that. Yeah. One is that I think, you know, he did say in here that, you know, in some places you have to punch up the writing. But he actually said in some <laughs> cases the writing was better than what he would produce. And the second thing is even if it is not great, yeah. I think that's a short-term problem. Yeah, it's, uh, it will, it will uh, get better. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. I think the other thing we have to talk about is ChatGPT learn from your past work, mm -hmm. right, and others' past work. Mm -hmm. So it is borrowing sometimes, you know, whole cloth ideas from others. We don't necessarily always know. Yeah. And that was all, you know, that's all uncompensated intellectual and other labor that folks have been doing that, you know, OpenAI and these other companies get to make a killing off yeah. of this. It, I, I think it... It makes me very nervous, and I'm glad you raised it, and yeah. that we should keep talking about okay. it. And there also are, you know, things that are just factually incorrect that you have to obviously be careful about with mm -hmm. ChatGPT. Fake citations. Fake citations mm -hmm. for studies that don't exist. Um, I've <laughs> I encountered do love this, that. right? And it's like these are not actual studies, and then you're like, oh no. Oh, that's well, that, <laughs> right. I mean, you are responsible for that, right? Right, right. You, right. So yeah. it's like, at, you know, buyer beware if you're going to use that. You have some some big gaps still, but I, I'm sure you're correct though that they are temporary. Some yeah. of these gaps yeah. are temporary. Yeah. yeah. All right, Allegra, what have you got? Well, I learned this. I know week. what you have. Did, and you, I, did you see I, this in the Washington Post? I did, and I, I'm. I think this is awesome. I know we're two days after Halloween, and who knows what? I don't know when this airs, but I'm still in the Halloween spirit. And there was a. This is actually from a paper published in Frontiers in Psychology back in February, but picked up by the Washington Post this week. I yep. think in honor of Halloween, yep. investigating the etiology of the fear of clowns, which I have now learned is called. Coolrophobia or cholerophobia. Can you disclose? Do you have fear of clowns? I don't, which is probably why it was easy for me to dive into this. Paper. <laughs> Do you remember we did an episode on this yes. about the clowns? On this yes. paper? No, no, but about fear of clowns. In right. general, yeah. it has yeah, come yeah. up multiple times. Yes. This is apparently a thing. Yeah, we were not aware of it either. Right. Yeah. Right. I have I, I remember having a friend who had a severe fear of clowns and I witnessed it once and I, I realized that it's that's severe. It's it is very scary. You can see why. I mean I didn't have fear of clowns, but I could, I could see why. They are 
it's a weird thing, especially that you'd want to like show to kids, like have kids. I it's don't like know. a yes. variation of like a monster, <laughs> yes. like in some kind of strange human. Form. Strange human. Right, That's right. one of the etiologic <laughs> pathways they talk about, the uncanny oh, no. valley effect. So they did make a strong case that this is a very under-researched phobia. It's not actually in the DSM-5, you know, sort of the, uh, so it doesn't have that stamp of validation, but it's it is a very common phobia, they say, based on some very non-rigorous <laughs> epidemiologic research. Mm-hmm. But the, so we don't really know the prevalence. Prevalence is it, across multiple cross-sectional studies that were non-probability samples seem to vary from 2% to 50% depending yeah. on yeah. how the they measured. Or the cloud the that survey. they were presenting with. <laughs> yes. The experimental conditions. Yes, yes. I'm yeah, sure it's... Stephen King cloud. <laughs> that yeah. came up multiple yeah. times. Yeah. Ronald McDonald comes up as a yeah. classic example Ronald of a cloud that many people find. Yeah, Ronald McDonald is a little creepy. For kids, anyway. So for me, I mean, I, I think the, the take home here is that I'm always interested in folks who are exploring areas of our sort of thought process, our, cult- our very culturally specific, but also cross-cultural kind of fears and, and interests. And they, they've they done that. They've made the case that this is worth thinking about because it is more common than we realize. But we sure. don't really understand. And it also allowed me to, to learn that there's a whole field of study of folks who are interested in what defines creepiness itself. Oh, <laughs> oh. And that itself is We're very in the wrong Interesting. So if we want to do a deep dive, there are psychologists thinking about how we define creepiness and also whether we, uh, why we're afraid of clowns, which this, you know, short story is in this sample, it did not seem to be based on experience and negative experiences with clowns. It was these other pieces, the uncanny Mm -hmm. valley. They're not quite human. They're hiding their emotions and it, they're negative, a lot of negative media portrayals. So, but it's not. It isn't that we've been harmed by clowns typically. I hope I hope <laughs> not. I I'm pretty sure I said this the last time we talked about clowns, but I I had two friends, one from high school, one from college, who both independently met each other at clown college. Mm. Oh yes. So I have two friends who went to clown college, and I don't know what that says about me, <laughs> but I bet clowns they would, are apparently a thing. They are, and I bet they'd take issue with this characterization because clowns actually are uh, cover a broad for range sure, of for yeah. sure. So I just want to honor that. The, sure. the article we had amazing. reviewed a couple of years ago was not exactly about fear of clowns, but it was about the use of clowns in pediatric like ERs yeah. and pediatric yes. hospital procedures to try to ease the anxiety yes. of children, which led us to a conversation of maybe it would have the opposite effect. <laughs> there is some <laughs> research on that. Right? Yeah. Some subset of children right. and their caregivers right. are not fans of that, yeah. but yeah. others understandably. <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's crazy and hard to beat. But my my final. This was also from from Nature, just from this past month. And this is the kind of article where I personally love to peruse Nature because it's so different than yeah, anything I I'm ever think about. So, have you ever wondered where the head of a starfish is? Oh, I have. Have you? It, so I, I wonder where the a sea star. They actually call it technically a sea star. The, the, the head or the yeah. yeah. Like where is the mouth? Apparently, this is one well, of the wait, largest zoological this. mysteries. But we know right. this because there's a starfish on SpongeBob, and he has a face. <laughs> oh, that's and, right, right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, it's right, right in the middle. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> yeah. we should comment to nature yeah. with that. It is right, back. right, right, right. <laughs> Apparently, the location of the head of the sea star is one of the enduring zoological mysteries of our age. As is the growth patterns of the sea star because apparently in a larval form they are bipedal 
What? And then as they grow, they grow their five-leg design that we are familiar with. And so the question was from an evolutionary perspective. First of all, why and how does that happen? These are a form of animal called echinoderms, kind of like sea urchins. Like why do they develop in a way that's very parallel to many organisms at the beginning, but then they diverge into such a crazy way where it's, they don't even seem to have a head. And so this, this is a paper published in Nature. This was a group of researchers at Stanford. What they did is they used RNA sequencing to be able to identify different cells associated with different body systems. They mm -hmm. sampled from across the sea star and they were able to identify cells that had the structure of or function of head, head cells, well, I guess. head cells? <laughs> I don't know. Like this brain? Brain cells or cells that would have gone into like a neurological structure. Yeah. Okay. And they All found right. them diffused among the, the arms and limbs of the sea star. And they generated, I just printed them out, these beautiful kind of 3D figures showing kind of the sequencing of the different functions of these cells across the different parts of the sea star. And this was just research to me that was so different than anything so cool. I ever would have done, but basically found that the sea star has diffused, they, they said it had no one core head, unlike, well, who is that character in Spongebob? I don't remember. The, I don't watch enough Spongebob to know. Unlike a, a head and a face, but it's kind of diffused among the animal, which I thought was kind of intriguing. That is Ooh. that is good to know. I am, that's going to change my view of C, C, of, of star, what, what are we calling them? I think when I was a kid, they were called starfish, yeah, I thought but they then I think they renamed them sea stars because sea they stars. said they're not fish. Oh, okay. Well, that's going to change my view of sea stars. Forever. 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 That's what I'm going for. Okay. Now, so now, so when I talk to it, where do I look? <laughs> you just, you just got to keep the whole thing and it's in it your just frame. constantly be, okay, got it. Right. Okay. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can leave us a comment on the Population Health Exchange website at pophealthex.org. We want to thank Nick Guler at BU School of Public Health for sound and producing. Normally, but today Mark Takakti is filling in and doing the sound and production. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. Mm -hmm.